Welcome to the Grove Community Church Worship Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. Here's this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I have a feeling it probably has for some of you. But when Bennett was in fifth grade, um, I, he, he signed up for basketball. And I didn't want to be the coach, right? I was like, yeah, I'm just, I, I've coached for a couple of years. I really don't want to do that this year, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to hold off. Well, they were in desperate need of, I mean, Mr. Dan, you know that I coached for a few years, right? So it was out for that, and this was fifth grade, Bennett was, uh, we were playing at the YMCA. And so they said, well, look, Mr. McGee, uh, we are in desperate need of, of, uh, of assistant coaches, Right? So they're always in desperate need. Have you ever noticed that? Like every league is in desperate league. Are they really that desperate? And if so, does that mean we shouldn't be doing this? But anyway, that's a whole different topic. So we're in desperate need of of an assistant. Would you be willing to, uh, yes, begrudgingly, yes, I'll be there. I mean, I got to take the kid to practice anyway. I might as well stick around and help, you know, just make sure there's not insanity and chaos. And so, so I said yes to, well, two weeks into the, into the practice, we hadn't even started our first game. The coach, whose son was not only the star on our team, but who was probably the best player in our league, well, no, probably about it, he was the best player in our league, decided they didn't like how the league was being run, so they quit. You know what that meant? This guy became the coach, all right? So I was not ready for this, was not prepared for it. Not only was I the coach, but the team that we had just lost the best player in the league and our best player on the team. And not only had we lost the best player in the league and the best player on the team, the rest of the guys that I had were kind of the players that they didn't know what team to put on, and so they put them all on one team. Every other team was an AAU team. It was a already created team, a team that they had to try out for, a team that they had been practicing together for years for and 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 all of these guys that they stack their team with these athletes and we come into the league and I've got the you know I've got the I don't know the little rascals out there man it was crazy and I'm like oh Lord Jesus please help me so when I took over the team I had a kind of a, a meeting with the one day at, at, at practice with the with the parents and I said look guys just going to be honest with you. We're just going to lay the cards on the table here. We're not going to win a lot of games, but that's okay. Because if it was just about winning at this age, you might as well just walk out and not come back. We're, we're just not going to be a team that can compete with all the other teams because they've been playing together for a while and because they're stacking their teams with talent and we're just, it's just us. And I had two or three people that had never played before. And so I said, but my goal is that by the end of the year, every single one of these players will be a much better basketball player. That they will be a better basketball player, that they will learn some discipline. We are going to work on the fundamentals. And I promise you this, that your child will be better at the end of the year, and our team will progress and become better at the end of the year. Well, in the third game, we faced this team that was just, I mean, completely stacked. And by halftime, we were down by 30 points. Now, if you don't know about fifth grade basketball, 
there's not a lot of scoring. So if someone reached 30 points in a game, that's amazing. This team had reached 30 points in the first half. There was not a single guy on our roster that was as tall or taller than their second tallest guy. We were badly undermanned. So I brought him in at halftime, and I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. My flesh was like, throw the white flag. We're leaving this gym. I'm done. This is, this is just, I mean, my kids are going backwards. So through the game, they walk on the court, and, and every single guy, I mean, it's like, what, you know, I can't guard this guy. He's four inches taller than me, like across the board. What are we supposed to do here? And at halftime, Mr. Dan, you've probably been there, you know. Uh, at halftime, I was like, guys, I mean, I, I wanted to quit. But as a coach, you can't say that, right? Nah, we're just going to quit. We'll see you guys. I'll have a good one. What's that teach the kid? And I told the parents, I want your kid to be a better basketball player by the end of the year and a better person by the end of the year. So at halftime, I don't remember what the speech was. I mean, I'm not going to challenge Newt Rockney or anybody else for the best speech or Bear Bryant or whoever for the best speech of all time. I, I'm certainly no, uh, um, you know, no Vince Lombardi. But I pulled him in and I said, look, guys, I don't want you to look at the score. The reason why we're behind like we are is because y'all quit doing what I've asked y'all to do. Just play simple, fundamental basketball. So the second half... We're just going to do a few things, but we're going to do it really well. You're going to box out and rebound. You're going to hustle to the ball. And every time that a player has the basketball, you're going to defend the ball. And I don't care if the guy's four inches taller than you. Get your hands up and get in his face. When we're playing defense, I want you in your defensive stance that I've taught you. And I want your hands up and out to create less passing, fewer passing lanes. Guys, if we just do a few simple things, our second half will be better than the, than the first half. I promise you. Let's just remember who we are and what we do. The second half comes around, and of course, they're walking out there like this. The other team, you know, they get the... I think one of them actually drove to the, to, to the thing, you know, and smoking a cigarette in the parking lot. Yeah, we ready? It was that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? So I was like, oh, my gosh. So, so these guys coming out, you know, freshly shaven after their halftime shave because their beard's growing, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know who these kids were or where they came from. Fifth graders, I'm like, yeah, right. So we come out, and I said, guys, let's just, let's just see what happens. And for the next however minute, what, I think 16 minutes, my guys played their hearts out. Simply because they didn't look at the obstacles, they just did what they were supposed to do. Well, today, in this short message, we're going to look at a parable about prayer that teaches a very similar thing. I, as, we, as we've gone through this through this series about, about Jesus teach us to pray. You know, that's kind of the theme of the, of, of the series. 
We're, we're coming to a parable that I think is extremely powerful, particularly in times like this, a time where we're, we're battling all sorts of issues in our culture, whether it's, it's overcoming racism and then also just the craziness that has ensued with people who aren't really for black lives, but people who are just really for chaos. And we've got those guys out there. And then we've got people who, who are, you know, just rigid on, um, I'm going to shut my life down and, and live as a hermit inside. And then we got other people that look at those and fuss at those people and say, no, it's okay. You need to live your life. I mean, we got across the board, all these divisions and all this, just quit, quit, right? Quit looking at social media if you need to. But my point is, is that we live in a time where we have all of this stuff bubbling up and going on and it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to look at halftime and go, man, we're down by 30 points. I'm just ready to toss in the flag. Has anybody felt that over the last three or four months? Like, I'm just done. I'm just done. I mean, and on top of this, you know, Turner gets attacked by a dog. Oh, yeah, great. Thanks, God. That's a, that's a great one. It's overwhelming sometimes. But this has always been the case. It's always been the human experience. We've gotten fooled in North America that life is easy and comfortable. Do you realize that for most of the world, they look at what we're going through right now and go, been there, done that. Oh, you, you're worried about having to wear a mask. Guess what? I'm, ha I'm having to worry about where I'm going to eat for the next four days. I have no food and nothing in sight for four days. It's... It's really what we go through as humans. Life is hard and difficult. And so in this parable, Jesus teaches the disciples how to fight through and live in this uncomfortable place, in this place that all of humanity experiences, this place of disaster and hurt and pain and fear. And so Jesus tells them this parable, remembering that in this part of Luke, we're going to look at Luke 18, Jesus has set his mind and his face to Jerusalem. He is going to the cross, and he knows where it ends. So not only are they experiencing in his, in his culture the, um, the, the Roman occupation and all that came with that, not only are, is he experiencing pushback from the religious leaders, not only is, is there trouble with, uh, uh, in poverty in his time, I mean, he, they experience all this stuff, but now, on top of all that, he knows he's going to be going to Jerusalem where he's going to carry the sins of the world. You think COVID's bad? Think about Jesus for a minute. And he told them this parable, Luke 18, 1, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I mean, we could stop there, right? <laughs> That's profound in and of itself. And Jesus didn't even say that. Luke did. The author of Luke kind of put this in to set up the parable. Or Luke's source did. It was either Luke himself or where he pulled this parable from. And he, he being Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now what's interesting about that phrase is that it's emphatic and you don't pick it up in our English language. It is a, uh, it's a present verb which carries the continuation idea with it automatically. So if there's a present verb, you really always translate it as continue to do whatever this verb says do. So in this case, continue to pray. Continue to pray. But then he adds this word always. So it's emphatic. 
So always continue to pray. And the second verb, which is actually infinitive, but that doesn't matter to you. And to not lose heart is continuous. And to never lose heart. To continue to take heart. To continue be strong, right? So it's this idea that you continue to pray nonstop, always. And as, as you're praying, you will continue always to not lose heart. So how do we not lose heart? We continue to pray. Pretty simple stuff. But then he tells a parable about it. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now let me stop here and let you understand something about the culture of Jesus in his day and what a judge was supposed to be. A judge was supposed to mete out the justice of God. They were supposed to be both righteous and just, both good and fair. They were supposed to stand up for the least of these. They were the stopgap for people like widows. A judge was supposed to be the, the highest, most respected, righteous person in their community. Only people like that got judged. That would be nice. That's a, that's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> Let's only put God-fearing, just, loving people as judges. If we did that, we'd be in a great place now. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God, he wasn't righteous, he didn't care what God thought about him, and he didn't care what God said about justice. Nor did he respect human beings. He didn't care about anyone. So he was neither just nor caring. He was neither righteous nor loving. This guy was despicable. So that's important to understand here. Now, it's odd that would never be the case, that would not be anything that would happen in Jesus' culture, or at least it wasn't supposed to happen, that this would have been unheard of. But somehow this guy is a judge. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice that, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now what's interesting is this beat down literally means to beat someone in the face and give them black eyes. Right? So it's metaphorical, obviously. But have you heard the phrase, they gave that person a black eye, and they don't mean a literal black eye means that they've tarnished their, their standing. But with this, it seems like what the judge's self-talk is, look, I'm tired of putting up with this lady, and she's beating me in the face. <laughs> like, her coming to me over and over again, I don't care about her, I don't care about Cod, I don't care about her getting justice. But she's just, she's wearing me out, and I'm done with her. So I'm going to do what she asks. And that's the parable. That's it. Now, that's a weird parable, isn't it? You have this, this judge that's weird. You have a widow who's not getting justice, which would have been somewhat unusual. 
And, and, and you have this judge who decides, ah, yeah, willy-nilly, I'm just going to do it because she's worn out. What does that even mean? If you take the parable by itself, it's hard to understand, but we're going to get a little bit of information at the back end of this parable and remember what we learned in verse 1. Before we get to the second part of this is Jesus' explanation, I need you to understand that widow here showing up for herself is very unusual. It means a couple of things. One, she didn't have a kinsperson that could stand up for her. It was very unusual for a woman to be at court or to stand in front of or to even talk to a judge. So that means she was literally by herself. So just put that in perspective. This is a lady who has no one else in her life to help her. So think about your worst circumstance. Think about the worst thing that you've been through. And then think about that being, going through that with no one there to help you. Think about how desperate that would be. What would it feel like to go through your worst moment in life and to have absolutely no one there with you or for you or backing you up? That's what this, this widow had. The second thing it tells us is that she had no money. Because how did things happen if it's an unjust judge and you had money? Y'all can answer that. What would happen? A bribe. Judge. Come here, I got some. Look at these Benjamins. That's how it would work. But she had no money. So she had no one, and she had no money. Now think about your worst experience in life, the thing you've been through that's, that's utterly been devastating to you. And some of you haven't had that yet, but train wrecks do happen in almost every life. So imagine going through that with no one and no resources. That's what this widow is experiencing. It's desperation. And a desperate person can only rely on themselves and the only recourse she had was to beat the guy in the face verbally. So she shows up and she is wearing him out, beating him in the face. I think it's a hilarious uh, kind of a, a visual that Jesus, that Jesus uses on purpose. I think Jesus had pretty good humor. And so he's creating this kind of almost cartoon-esque sequence. And then the judge relents finally. And then Jesus tells us this in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day or night? Will he delay long over them? So this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. This is how it goes in essence. If a judge who doesn't love people and who doesn't care about God, if a judge who is not righteous and who doesn't seek God, if a judge who, who is unloving and uncaring and doesn't give a rat you behind about anybody, if that judge relents, how much more will the God who loves you, the God who created you, the God who doesn't want you to be alone, the God who wants to provide for all your needs, how much more will that God answer? If a judge answers with justice and he is unjust, how much more is the just God going to answer your prayers? How much more is he going to show up in your worst moments? How much more is he going to hear your cries and your pleas? How much more? Do you see the argument? He's saying, guys, wake up. You're about to go through some stuff. We're heading to Jerusalem and it's going to get ugly. 
And your life probably isn't going to end well. But don't lose heart because I'm with you through the middle of it. And if you cry out to me, I hear you and I answer. If an unjust judge answers with justice, how much more will I answer what you need because I am your loving father. And how much do I love you? Look what I've done with my son. How much more proof do we need? So, he says, Jesus says, if the unjust, unrighteous judge says what he says, will not God give justice to his elect, those who are following him and seeking him, and who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And then he answers this, I tell you, he will give justice to them, and he'll do it speedily. So God's answer might not come for a while. You might have to linger in this uncomfortable place. But when it happens and God answers, wham, he answers. It's coming. There's a quote from Josie Wells that I'm tempted to say, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about, Mr. Dad? About something coming to breakfast. When it comes, it's coming with a vengeance. The point is, God hears you, and even if you don't feel his answer, even if you don't feel his presence, even if, you, if you're like, okay, God, I'm sorry, I've been praying for this for a long time, and you haven't moved, he's saying, don't worry, he is going to move, and when he does, it's coming, it's happening, so get ready, it's coming speedily. So you might think, man, I've been, I've been sitting here for all this time just wearing God out with this prayer and just begging him and he's, he's, it's like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and going no further. What is going on? Well, God hears you and he's going to answer. But when he answers, it's coming and it's coming fast. So just be ready. Just understand he always hears and he always answers. But it's not ever generally in my timing or how I would answer it. Right? It's rarely in my timing. It's never how I would answer it. Have you found that out? And so Jesus is warning his disciples, look, life is going to be hairy. It's going to be nasty. You're going to feel like that widow who has no one and no resources. You're going to be left alone and there's going to be no one to hear your cry on earth. But get this, I hear you and I care. And I'm answering. And when I answer, I might delay. But when I'm coming, you better get ready because something's coming for breakfast. I'm bringing my justice. Nevertheless, we are told in the second part of verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Wait, what? <laughs> How did this go from we ought to always pray and not lose heart to will the Son of Man, when he comes, find faith on earth? Like, the first time I read that, I'm like, what the, what? Jesus, where are you going with this? It makes no sense to me at first reading. Why would he go from this parable about prayer to will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Well, there's something that our translations don't add here, and it's the in front of faith. There's an article. When the Son of Man comes, will he find 
the faith on earth. What faith? The same kind of faith the widow had. The faith that doesn't give up. That's powerful, guys. Jesus wants people who don't give up. And he empowers us to be a people who don't give up. Throughout Christianity, Christians have been the ones that are in the mud, the ones that have been oppressed, the ones that have been kept down, the ones that have been been mistreated. And over and over and over and over again, when, when the world tries to wipe Christianity out, it just explodes. The fastest growing movement in Christianity now is in places like Cuba and China where it's been suppressed for so many years and as things start to lighten and the heavy hand comes off a little bit, they open up and they peel back the layers and all of a sudden, all underneath, there's this, there's this just vast system of Christianity going on under the surface that no one knew about. Why? Because they didn't give up. They didn't give up. When the government said you can't do this, they didn't give up. When they said you can't worship Jesus, they didn't give up. When they were oppressed and beaten and killed or enslaved and thrown in prison, they didn't give up. When they were at their worst and they had no one and they had no resources, they didn't give up. They kept striving, they kept praying, they kept living out their faith. And so Jesus rightly turns this and says, in essence, will you have that kind of faith? The faith that doesn't get up. The faith that continues to pray and seeks me, even when things don't look good. Guys, there's no guarantee that this country is ever going to be back where you thought it should be or where you want it to be. There's no marker that's saying things are going to get better. And as a Christian, you should say, so what? So what? So what if the government disagrees with me or I disagree with it? So what if they tell me not to worship? So what if they tell me not to pray? So what if they tell me not to love my neighbor? So what if they try to oppress me? So what? So what if they take everything from me? So what if I have no one left? You can take all the people away from me and you can throw me in solitary confinement, but you can't reach me because there is something bigger that I have, something that no wall can hold out and no bars can keep from getting in. I have Christ. And they can try to beat it out of me, but it will not go away. I'm not saying that that's where our country's going. But if it did, will Jesus find that kind of faith that doesn't keep praying or that keeps praying? Would he find that faith in you? This is a beautiful parable for our time, isn't it? By the way, it was a great parable for slaves. Did you know that? For slaves who were ripped out of their country, for slaves who were told they weren't human, for slaves who were forced to have multiple babies from multiple different men, for, for slaves that were beaten, 
This was a parable for them too. It was a parable for Christian slaves who said, I don't care what they do to me, I'm going to continue to pray. I don't care what happens, I'm going to continue. And because they continued, there was change. Because they continued, there were people like Martin Luther King Jr., who made a difference because they didn't stop. Guys, we see this throughout our history. It was the same thing with John Wesley and his movement. It was the same thing with the Christians in the first century in the Roman in Rome. This throughout church history, throughout Christianity, we've had Christians who said, I'm not stopping praying, and I don't care what happens to me, I'm pressing forward. I can be down 30 points at half and I'm not giving up. I'm going to go back to the basics. And what's the basic? I'm going to love God and love others. I'm going to continue to pray without ceasing. And I'm not going to lose heart. And that's how someone like Corey Tim Boom got through the concentration camps. We walked back on the court after halftime. And I was almost embarrassed. Embarrassed to look up, embarrassed to send my guys back out on the court for a second half where I knew they were just going to get pulverized. <laughs> I just knew it was going to end badly. But something clicked. I would like to say it was my brilliant halftime speech. I would like to say it was the, the other team just got so badly outcoached the second half. I would like to take all the credit. Look at what I did. But it wasn't me. I just reminded the players who they were. It was the players. And for that second half, that next 16 minutes, they scrapped and they boxed out and they got rebounds and they put their hands up. And even if the guy was, there were guys that would put their hands up and it still wasn't get the guy's face. You know, it was that kind of, it was like, I'm trying, I'm trying to reach his face. I'm trying to get my hands up in front of him. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. But they did it consistently and they didn't stop and over and over and over again. It was unbelievable, and, and I just had to chuckle at it. And the other team started getting desperate, and by the end of the game, we lost. About three points. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not give up, not lose hope. I hope this message was meaningful and powerful to you, but I also hope that it was challenging. And as always, don't just hear it, put it into action. Until next week, have a great week.